I love that lyric, come and consume God all we are, all that we are. I hope that that is our prayer today, our cry today, and we're actually going to come back to that in a little bit later in the sermon. Good morning, family. So great to see you all today. Thank you, visitors, for joining us today. Anybody who is not a regular here, if you have any questions about anything regarding Fourth Avenue, do not hesitate to ask someone. We would love to hear whatever questions you have and get to know you better. And one quick announcement, we're going to provide a pretty substantial update on the shepherd selection process and a new slash revamped ministry that we're going to be starting up here soon next week. So stay tuned for that. Also, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, including my mom. Where's the camera? Hi, mom. I love you. Um, But moms, you're awesome. And we are so thankful for you. For some today, this might be your first Mother's Day. Congratulations. For some of you, this might be your 60th Mother's Day. Congratulations. Um, it's, it's just a, it's an awesome day that we get to celebrate. And I'm happy we do have a day to celebrate you all. And also all the spiritual moms out there. Those who are loving and caring for God's children and helping nourish them in the way of Jesus. Thank you for all that you do. We literally would not be here without you mothers. So thank you so much. And we're so thankful for your sacrifice and the gift that you are to our families. So enjoy your day. And in the same breath that I say that, I know today is a day that's really hard for a lot of people. I know this might be the first year or a long line of years that you have gone without your mother being here. Or maybe as a mother, you've lost a child and this day is pretty hard, or a spouse, that can be pretty hard too. Some of you may not have the best relationship with your mom. And mother, some of you may not have a great relationship with your child or your spouse. It's, it's a hard time. And some of you maybe are wanting to be a mom really desperately, and it hasn't happened yet. This is a tough day. This is a really hard day for a lot of people. And if if you're in that position this morning, I'm really sorry. And I want to give you a little bit of comfort from Isaiah 66 today. God says this, as a mother comforts her child, so I, God, will comfort you. Today, may you all feel the comforting and loving presence of God. We're going to continue our series this morning on the book of Acts called Church on Fire, which is about how spirit-empowered people of God took the good news of Jesus and spread it to the whole world, at least the known world of the time. And today we're talking about one of the most important topics we can, and I could probably make a whole series out of this, so just know that I'm trying to do a lot with a little amount of time. So I ask that you stick with me through this, okay? So last year, while I was teaching at Lipscomb, there was an inevitable question that would always come up right around the time that grades were due. I would have students come up to me, they would ask this question, is there anything I can do to raise my grade? As day followed night, I would have several students come up and do that. And I don't blame them, because there is so much pressure for you to get a good grade for the sake of getting into college, or maybe it's athletic eligibility, or whatever it is. So I had a lot of people coming in and doing that. And honestly, as a student, I did the same thing. (laughs) 
I, I would frequently go to my teachers and be like, hey, I'm sitting at like a B. Can we like bump that up? Can I do some extra credit? But with my students, normally what would happen, this would come from a place of desperation. Like they need this grade to go up. They need it so bad. So it's like, is there anything I can do? And that, that desperation, it normally comes from a place of regret. Wishing, ah, oh, I should have turned in those two assignments that I didn't. I should have put in a little bit more effort for this presentation to get a higher grade, that sort of thing. But that question of, is there anything I can do? Or what should I do? Coming from a place of desperation, that's a place that we can find ourselves pretty frequently. If finances are really tight, we can start asking the question, what can I do or what should I do with my money? If you're a new parent for the first time and you're holding your child, you are probably asking the question, what on earth do I do? <laughs> I'm supposed to take this human home with me? This was the same sort of position that the crowd was in that Peter was talking to in Acts 2. They realized that they had done something and they, they were in a place of desperation, want, wanting to know what they could do to make, make it right. And just to recap, last week we talked about how Peter preached the gospel to, or not last week, two weeks ago, how Peter preached the gospel to this big crowd and he speaks of Jesus' death resurrection and exaltation and he ends with this line let all Israel be assured of this God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah now let's get into the response of the crowd here in verse 37 it says when the people heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles brothers what shall we do there's that question coming from a place of desperation and that's the question we're going to be largely looking at today what should we do in response to the gospel? Being told that you killed the king of kings is not a small thing. And it's, so the expression is cut to the heart. It says they were cut to the heart. That Greek word for cut, it literally means to pierce or stab. And it's the same word that's used for the soldier that stabbed Jesus' side on the cross. And one's heart is one's inmost being or the deepest part of themselves. So this is an expression talking about a deep sense of sorrow and grief. And they want to make it right, so they ask, what should I do? And some of you may not like that Peter sort of guilt-tripped this crowd right here. But I believe in a holy guilt. Such as we might want to remove, we, we want to get as far away from the feeling of pain from the sin that we cause. We want to not think about that very much, but as much as we try to do that, I think we need to feel remorse for our sin. Not strap it to our, our identity, and thus it becomes shame, but we do need to feel remorse whenever we bring evil into the world. And if we don't do that, that's actually kind of a psychopathic tendency. The Spirit of God, one of his roles is to convict people of sin. It is so important. We should feel convicted. We don't want to bring death and evil into this world. And if the Spirit of God didn't do that, if the Spirit did not convict us of sin, then that means the Spirit doesn't really love us. Because love does not sit idly by as a loved one is making decisions that are going to harm their life. So God's conviction of sin in our lives is one of the best gifts that we have from the Holy Spirit. So this crowd feels deeply convicted about the gospel and this realization, they ask, what should we do? And here's Peter's response. <laughs> and every, 
Church of Christer can probably repeat. No, I'm kidding. Um, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, a.k.a. not just the Jews, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So let's really break down this response that Peter's saying. So repent is the first word. And a lot of times we think of repentance as maybe saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to try better next time. I'll try not to do that. It's more than that. In ancient Jewish thought, there are three primary things about repentance that are important to keep in mind. The first one is remorse. So kind of like what we just talked about. It's that feeling of conviction, of seeing our sin for what it is, that it's bringing evil into God's good world. The second is confession. This is acknowledging before God and other people that we have sinned. So what we do is we renounce our sins. We don't come up with excuses. We don't justify the things that we did. We own up that we made a big mistake or mistakes. This is apologizing and taking the blame and accepting whatever consequence that may come from this confession. And the third one, I think this is the part that we do not like the most, is resolution. This is about making something as right as we can that we made wrong. This means a commitment to not do that thing again. It means that we reconcile with a person or people that we harmed. It means that we try to make the best out of a broken situation. Really what repentance is, is the work of heaven. It's a kind of resurrection or redemption. Because what's happening is you are trying to specifically bring life into something that you brought death into. Let me give you an example of really good repentance in in Scripture. In Acts 19, as Paul is ministering in Ephesus, we read this in, in verse 18. It says, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which is roughly like a year and a half of wages. So when Paul is converting these wizards, basically, their repentance was to take their scrolls, the things that were so precious and important to them, and burn them. And that was not a cheap thing for them to do. It looks like repentance. It looks like whenever a person goes into a recovery group for the first time. It looks like whenever somebody gets an accountability partner or whenever you make a plan with your spouse to change the cycle. Repentance has a lot of different forms, but it requires doing something that gets you out of that rut, out of that cycle of you keep making that same decision. Repentance is so important. It is a turning or a returning to what is right. And for Peter's audience and for us, we have been, we were walking away from Jesus but now we are turning and trying to walk back towards him. That is what repentance is. So we have repent and then be baptized. And the word baptism, it's baptizo in Greek, and it literally means to immerse or to dip or submerge. Baptism is so, so significant in Christian theology. In my opinion, I think the best text on baptism in the Bible is Romans 6. Paul really speaks to its significance there. It says in verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. This text goes on to talk more about, I believe, baptism significance and identity, new identity significance. But at the very least, from what we see in Romans 6, there is deep symbolism about baptism. But it seems like there's more than just symbolism in baptism. Romans 6 implies that our baptism in some way unites us with Jesus' own death and resurrection. Which is fascinating to think about the ins and outs of that. As Christ was buried and raised, we too will be. Also, baptism, it showcases our new identity in Jesus. Our new life in Christ. Which is fitting to talk about on Mother's Day. Because new birth, it means new life. And it means a deep love from, from parent to child. And that's what happens with Jesus' baptism. Whenever he's coming out of the water, the father says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. We are given a new identity in our baptism. We are a new creation. Our truest identity is not who we were or what we were living for. Our truest identity is that we are children of God. And that can't be taken away from us. And finally, baptism, it means freedom from our sins. That we are dead to them. That our sins do not have power over us anymore. <clears throat> and we can resist our desires through the Holy Spirit. Baptism is symbolic of our continual repentance as followers of Jesus. We are moving away from who we were into who we truly are, who we were created to be all along. So baptism and repentance, super, super important. But it says to do this in the name of Jesus Christ, which is another important element of this. In the name of Jesus Christ, it implies a level of belief. You have to believe in Jesus in this. And this isn't just a belief that Jesus existed and was a, a cool moral teacher or something like that. This is belief that Jesus is the Lord of all. That he died and was risen. And this sort of rounds out the frequent responses that you hear in Acts. Each of those are in, in Acts at least ten times in a conversion setting. Belief, repentance, baptism. Those things keep coming up over and over. They don't all show up in the same place or all the time. So there are times that one or two of them is not explicitly mentioned. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that it wasn't recorded, that people either were baptized or repented or whatever. But those three things are frequent in conversion experiences in Acts. And many kinds of churches have looked through the Bible to try to discern what the pattern is to try to figure out what actually should be our response to receive the gospel. Primarily looking at what brings us salvation. And there's a good amount of disagreement on this among Christian groups. <clears throat> and exactly what our response should be. Or another way to ask this question is what is necessary for salvation? Some might argue it's five steps of salvation. Some might argue that you pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. Some might say it is 
the falling of the Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues? There's a lot of different answers to that question and a lot of division surrounding it. What might you say is necessary for salvation? Or another way to ask this question is, how does somebody receive the Holy Spirit? Because clearly in Scripture, salvation and the reception of the Holy Spirit are linked. Two examples of this. In Romans 8, it says, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Ephesians 1 says, Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession. So when one receives the Holy Spirit, they are saved. That's another way to communicate that. So with that in mind, where in Acts and at what time do we see people receive the Spirit of God? This is a fascinating study, guys. This week, I was just like trying to wrap my mind around all this, but it's really interesting. So Acts 2, what we have been talking about the last few weeks, it makes it seem like after you repent and are baptized, you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the progression of that verse. And it makes sense, too, thinking about Jesus' own baptism. Whenever he comes out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. So it's, it's understandable to think that way. But the thing is, it's interesting, is it's not like that consistently in Acts. In Acts 8, it says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Huh? In Acts 2, Peter just said, repent and be baptized, everyone, in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. But they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they didn't receive... Huh? How does that make sense? And it says in verse 17, then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the laying on of hands is what enabled these people to receive the Holy Spirit, okay? Interesting. Let's go to Acts 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Just by listening? Was there a level of belief implied there? Doesn't say. Uh, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had poured, been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So there's the spirit reception evidenced by tongues. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Okay, so in this sequential order, the Holy Spirit comes before baptism. And then Peter's like, okay, well, they have the Holy Spirit. Let's get them baptized. And then they're baptized. All right, let's keep going. Acts 16. And we'll take 16 and 19 together. So someone asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? Which is a question that we're asking today. And Paul's response was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And if I were a betting man, it seems like the most consistent way scripture talks about like the moment somebody is saved. It has to do with faith in Jesus or belief in Jesus. Like John 3.16 or those types of passages. But Acts is really confusing on this. So after, the, after that person believed in Acts 16, that person in their household was baptized. So keep that in mind with 16. Now we're going to 19. Paul is in Ephesus, 
and he asks, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? You feel like the answer to that question should be yes, after what Paul just said, right? And it says, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asks, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So, uh, in this situation, and the belief in this text is a little ambiguous, right? We see several times in the Gospels that John's baptism is not sufficient enough. People need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But it's really, really interesting that they didn't have the Holy Spirit upon their belief. If it is like true belief in Jesus, which that's the part that's kind of a question mark here. But then they're baptized in the name of Jesus, and it's not until the laying on of hands that they receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. This is fascinating to me. Um, In several of the places in Acts, exactly how... And exactly when the Holy Spirit falls on someone doesn't look the exact same. So the question remains, at what point does someone actually receive the Holy Spirit? Is it the initial stage of belief? Is it calling on the name of the Lord in prayer? Is it upon repentance? Is it before you go into the water? Is it while you're under the water? Is it when you come out of the water? Is it, how does the laying on of hands factor in with all of this? If someone walked into my office on a week and asked what they had to do to receive the Holy Spirit, I'd probably respond similar to what you see the response here in Acts is. Yeah, you have to put your faith in Jesus, believe in Jesus as the Lord of all, that he died and rose again for your life, for your sins, for the whole world's sins, but also repent, turn to Jesus, make him the Lord of your life in that action, be baptized in his name, right? And I would even say, like, pray and ask for God to give you his Holy Spirit, because God is a God that likes to give good things to people who ask, including the most important gift, I would say. But ultimately, church, salvation is a mystery. We hear that several times in Scripture, and to be clear, I'm not saying it's a mystery in how we respond. I'm not saying it's a mystery in whether we're saved or not. Because though God is mysterious, he's also kind in that he reveals himself to us. And he tells us really tangible things to do. And him telling us how to respond, that in itself is a gift. And he gives us the assurance of our salvation by giving us his Holy Spirit. And simply from God's own character, that is assurance enough. So this mystery, it's not a mystery of fear. It's a mystery of wonder. It's not a mystery of shaky ground, it's a mystery of firm and solid ground. But the mystery I'm talking about are things like, at what point does somebody receive the Holy Spirit? And also, how exactly does God take a physical act of someone going underwater and coming out of it, how does that link us with Jesus' death and resurrection in some way? I don't know. And as you saw in looking at these texts in Acts, I think the examples of when the Holy Spirit comes, it provides evidence that salvation is, in fact, a mystery. And whenever I read of all these accounts in Acts, I don't see these as contradictions. I don't see these as inconsistencies. I see this as a God that is incomprehensible. I see this 
Like uh, in what Jesus says in John 3, he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit blows, the Holy Spirit goes where the Holy Spirit wants to go. We cannot put the Holy Spirit in the little box that we might want to. Ultimately, church, if you really boil it down, what's necessary for salvation is a gracious God. And luckily, we have one. We're not saved based upon the work that we do, but based upon God's work through Christ for us. And because our God is gracious and wishes that none should perish, if there is a genuine heart in a person that is seeking God and asking for God's Holy Spirit, I can't imagine knowing God's character and God's heart for all people, him saying, nah, I don't really want to do that. Because our God is the God of the prodigal, right? Like we can walk a million steps away from him. We can blow the whole inheritance. But when we come back, God is there with open arms, ready to take us in. <laughs> even, even if they were murderers of his own children like Paul was, right? And, and God made Paul into something amazing. And though we may not know the exact point that the Holy Spirit enters into the person, we do know the end result in all of these conversion stories. These people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God is gracious and he accepts their response. I get that we want to know the ins and outs of salvation because it is such an essential topic. Like, we need salvation, right? But sometimes I wonder if when we ask that question, we're kind of going at it with the same mindset whenever I had a student, whenever I was a student. And that is, am I doing minimum stuff for the maximum reward? Am I trying to just know what the baseline necessity is and then, yeah, I'm good? What if instead of prioritizing what's necessary for salvation as a question or what is a salvation issue, instead of prioritizing that, because what that does is it creates this sort of dichotomy of these are the things that are really important for me to follow and these things are not as important. What if instead of asking that question, we ask, how do I get closer to Jesus? I think that's a better one because it includes the first steps of salvation, but it also stresses that every aspect of following Jesus is important because salvation is not just a one-time event, but an ongoing process. The moment that we receive the Holy Spirit, yes, we are saved and praise God that that is true. But the same word that's used for salvation in scripture, it means deliverance. So we are saved in that one-time event, but we are continually being saved. We are continually being delivered from our old self and who we used to be as we are being made more and more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit continues to chip away at us. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is in, uh, I almost said 3 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. 3 Corinthians is interesting. Um, <laughs> it says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our lives are about walking in step with Jesus. And one of the greatest assurances that we can have in knowing that we have the Holy Spirit is the fact that we can look back at the beginning of our faith. We look back at who we were before we knew Jesus, and we look at who we are now 
and you see the transformation that has taken place. You're not a perfect specimen right now, but you can look back and see how the Holy Spirit has shipped away at you, how you have grown and been transformed from one degree of glory to another. That is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is a sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The natural overflow of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it means bearing the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits that we bear helps us know that the Holy Spirit is within us. And that evidence was super clear in Acts 2. As all of these individuals were filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens is they are all devoted to one another in fellowship and prayer, and they sell their possessions, and none of them have any need amongst them, right? You see that immediate transformation of the Holy Spirit in this community. And that's not to say that these people didn't sin anymore from that point on, but I know these people could look back and be like, who I was pre-Jesus is significantly different than post. So back to that question, what must we do? What is our response to the gospel? The answer is yes, believe, repent, be baptized, all of those things. But it's also live in step with Jesus. Live by the fruits of the Spirit. Lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that Jesus' last words to his disciples, it wasn't just go baptize people. It was teach them all the things that I have commanded you. There's a level of obedience that's necessary to be a follower of Jesus. So today, I ask you to consider this, church. What is a more compelling life? One that seeks to answer the question, what is necessary for salvation? Or one that asks the question, how can I be more like Jesus? My prayer is that we move from thinking about our faith like this, which this is a wonderful drawing that I spent so much time on. Um, <laughs> Instead of us thinking about salvation like this, where there is a line in which I am saved and, and where I am not, instead of getting as close as we can to that line, instead of being like, I just want to do the bare minimum possible, what if we instead had a model that was more like this? That I'm not trying to flirt with the line, I'm trying to get as close to the center, as close to Jesus as I possibly can. Could you imagine how different your life would look if that was your model? Because church, our goal is not to shoot for the bare minimum of what is necessary for me to be saved. So once I cross off those things on my lift, I'm good, I can coast. I can do whatever I want. Our goal is Christ-likeness. It is following in the footsteps of Jesus. It shouldn't be about just barely trying to finish the race, but trying to sprint through that finish line and fly through it, right? This is not just something that we're just barely trying to make it in. We need to be moving from the milk of our faith into more of the meat of following Jesus. And if you would like prayers this morning or talk, want to talk with somebody to help you in that journey, help you get to that place where you're like, yes, I want Jesus over everything, then we can do that. There's going to be a time after uh, my prayer and during this next song that there will be people around the room that can pray with you. And I'm not, I'm not just saying this. We really want to walk with you in this. That's what discipleship is. We want to help you get closer to Jesus. And maybe for some of you that is responding like the church did in Acts. Maybe some of you today want to place your faith in Jesus, repent and turn to Jesus and be baptized into his name. And we can make that happen today. We've had a string of baptisms lately. It's, it's been awesome. I love seeing it. 
So if, if you are interested, you want to learn more about that, or you want to get closer to Jesus, please do not hesitate to go and pray with someone, talk with someone um, as, as you go from here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the mystery. We thank you that you're not a God that we can fully figure out and understand all the ins and outs of. And we also thank you that you are so kind and loving that you want to reveal yourself to us. And that you want us to be close to your heart. And you you want us to spend all of eternal life with you. God, help us to have the assurance in knowing that we are your child. Grant us that peace. That overwhelming sense of peace in knowing who we are in you. And Lord, I pray that you help us to move away from just trying to coast in our faith or just trying to do the, the bare minimum and ask the question of what else can I give over to you? How else can I get closer to Jesus? How else can the Holy Spirit chip away at some of the, the old self parts of us? Lord, I pray that you help us and just continue your sanctifying work through the Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Jesus because people like Jesus is what this world needs. Help us be that. Help us be that church. And we pray all that in Christ's name. Amen.